This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got, you got to, anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why, why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out, watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It 
it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's it, – It sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart. She just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something... You can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fun to talk to somebody that coaches these candidates. Some of them are so bad at uh, knowing what to do and how to do it. Can you imagine being paid by somebody to, I don't know, change how Bernie Sanders does stuff? Or how Donald Trump... Hey, Don, we... um, We need you to not say some of the things you're saying. What? What? Well, you know, the whole Muslim thing. Could you just tone down that rhetoric? And like uh, we've heard, he, he may not even believe some of this stuff. Because it works. It works. You know, there's the whole Times, New York Times uh, interview that he did that came up in a, one of the debates two or three, four debates ago, where the big question is, what is, what did he say off the record? Because with the journalist, he was saying something off the record, and many say what he was saying is 
he was saying it's not quite I'm not going to keep talking about this wall thing. In the end, it's like not it may not matter what they're saying, but it seems to matter to us, doesn't it? It seems to matter to us. What he what he was talking about was uh what with the New York Times something around the idea of he's not really into this uh all the is immigration stances he's taken. Yeah. That he doesn't really want to go that far with it, but he did in the speech because it, right. as you said, it brought people with him. And that, is there a, is there a tape of this? But the New York we, Times is like, it's up to Donald up to Trump. Donald. We'll release, release it. Yeah. We'll release everything he said. Yeah. And he's like, no, I believe too much in the freedom of press <laughs> <laughs> to keep their, to keep their secrets, especially when they're mine. But what what it might be telling us is people will say anything to get elected, right? We're even finding out in a lot of these states where Donald is doing well, immigration's not even an issue. It's not even an issue. But what it might be that people like is the fact that Donald seems so passionate about what he's saying. He's a salesperson, and he might be just selling his message better. He may not even believe in the message necessarily. Many question if he is conservative, right? But he'll sell it. He'll sell it. And so uh, be careful. Check your gut on that and go get the information you need. You can get it from enough sources. And it doesn't mean he's just a bad guy either, these politicians. It might just be that they're, they really want to win. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the presidential race has brought to light the country's frustration with current economic state. And while wages are up and the slow growth of the economy looks promising, many are still falling behind. Our guest today, Rana Faruhar, uh, author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, joins us to tell us more about our nation's trends towards financialization and the damage that it has caused. Uh, Rana, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to have you. I think, oh, this topic is so needed. Where have you been, (laughs) Rana? Oh, (laughs) I've been here. Seriously. (laughs) Don't you think, I? this is what I've been talking about. I think this is why so many kind of just middle Americans are are so frustrated. Because everyone's getting rich except 80% of America. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the reason I got interested in writing this book was I'm a business and financial journalist. And after the financial crisis, I watched as the markets were, you know, climbing to record highs and the rich seemed to be doing very well. You know, I live in New York City. I see a lot of very wealthy people around me all the time. But, you know, I grew up in rural Indiana. I spend a lot of time in middle America. And I could just see that Main Street across the country was not feeling this recovery. And I wanted to understand why. And my research led me to this idea that basically the financial system itself has begun to choke off our growth and our prosperity. And that's it's it's a very weird idea, because actually, if you look back to the history of capitalism, the financial markets were set up to serve Main Street. Right. They're supposed to they're supposed to take all of our savings in the form of bank deposits and lend it out to businesses, which then create jobs and growth and prosperity. 
But that's not happening. So the killer stat in my book, if you will, is that only about 15 percent of all the money uh, sloshing around America's financial financial institutions is actually being invested in Main Street business. What? And that's a big problem. Yeah, because then they don't have access to cash. They, and a lot of them don't have cash flow, but they go get the cash, but then they have to pay it back at such a big uh, cost that, that they themselves as business people aren't making anything. Right. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing because our financial system has become the tail that wags the dog. You know, the financial services are, are just that. They're services. They're set up to serve other businesses. Right. That was the idea. Um, and, and really, that's how the system worked up until about the 1980s, at which point the model began changing pretty radically. And it's interesting because since the 1980s, our growth, our trend growth as a nation has actually slowed. You know, I mean, we, we are growing much more slowly than we were, say, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And my book says that this is a big part of that. Hmm. You one of the things that's weird about your point um, is you need money. Right. To make money. Yeah. But it seems like right. now what's happening is the whole goal is just to make the money lenders money. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because if you look at, again, what's happened since the 1980s, so the financial services industry has nearly uh, tripled in size over that period. And they've begun to take the majority of corporate profits. So if you look at the financial services industry, it creates only 4% of all American jobs. Mm -hmm. It takes 25% of all American corporate profits. Wow. That is a lot of economic oxygen that is being taken out of the room by one industry and is choking off the growth of other industries. Because... And, and that's – if I'm a business person, I need that – more of that 25 percent to put back into research and development, to put back more into innovation, to hire more people. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the other perverse effects of the rise of finance is that the markets have begun to control what business people do. So if you look – at the pressure that the average CEO of a public company in America is under. You know, you, you, you go out, um, you're trying to sell your story to Wall Street. If they don't like your story, if you're not jacking up profits and, and your share price quarter after quarter, mm. you're out of there. You're going to get fired. I mean, the average tenure of a CEO in America today is three years. Um, and that's just not enough time for them to take the kinds of decisions, the long-term decisions they need um, to make the investments to really grow business for the future. Um, and another interesting thing is that, again, since finance began really taking off the 1980s, um, the behavior of all corporations in America has have changed. So businesses in all industries have now started to act like banks. They get more money from just moving money around, right. from hedging, from tax optimization, from trading than they did 40 years ago. So there's this sense that we should all act like bankers, and I think it's really undermining our economy. Yeah, we're just becoming a bunch of banks. Um, yeah. Which is funny, too, because uh, the too-big-to-fail bank idea, which was, you know, the, 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 the lack of control and oversight on the financial markets cost us so much, and yet mm -hmm. but there, there's something, there's an underlying issue. What I hear you're saying, though, is... Everything they're doing is legal and, and I guess more or less ethical – well, maybe not ethical, but legal. But, but it's not necessarily good for the country or the businesses. 
Right. I'm laughing because it's funny. Yeah, much of it is legal. You can argue ethical. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but what's interesting is that, you know, many of the practices that have become very commonplace didn't used to be legal. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is something called share buybacks. Now, this is when a company goes out into the public market and buys back their own stock. And this used to be illegal up until 1982. It was considered market manipulation. Well, this is now normal business. It's a practice that companies use to artificially jack up the share price of their stock when there's nothing really happening uh, in the underlying growth story. We have had two years, uh, 2015, 2016 have seen, and actually 2014 as well, have seen record numbers of share buybacks. So basically, companies are not creating real growth at Main Street level. They're creating artificial financialized growth. And what this does is it creates the kind of market bubble that we had back in 1999, back in 2007 in the run-up to the subprime crisis and the Great Recession. This is a really unhealthy thing for America because, of course, when those bubbles burst, we all suffer. You know, um, people, people, their portfolios go down, the value of their homes goes down, and it's a real issue. And by the way, as finance has gotten bigger, the number of financial crises um, has, has greatly increased. So we're dealing with this on a much, much more frequent basis than we used to in the past. Are a lot of the high-tech, uh, 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 the... I don't know. I don't want to name names, but are a lot of the high tech companies doing this because the ones that everyone talks about are so overinflated in value? Well, yeah. In fact, the lead chapter of my book talks a little bit about Apple, yeah. which um, it's interesting because so Apple is, you know, the one of the most loved, most prosperous, most successful companies in history. But it's interesting because you could argue, and I, I do argue, that they haven't really invented any groundbreaking new technology since Steve Jobs, the founder, passed away in 2011. Now, um, the current CEO, Tim Cook, pays a lot of attention to the balance sheet and to sort of financial manipulations. And so over the last few years, this company has handed back tens of billions of dollars to um, the biggest investors in the form of these share buybacks. And what's amazing is they have borrowed money to do it. Now, Apple has about $200 billion worth of cash. (laughs) Sitting in bank accounts, many of them, by the way, overseas yeah. in, ta- in tax havens because they don't want to bring that money back and pay the fairly high U.S. corporate tax rate on it. So instead, they're borrowing money here at home, going into debt to pay back people like Carl Icahn. This is not money that's going into building new factories or enhancing R&D. This is going to make the top 10 percent of the population in America that owns 80 percent of the top stock richer. And to me, that's just a bizarre system. You've got tons of cash, you borrow cash, you hand it back to the wealthiest people in the country without creating any real underlying growth. And to me, the math just doesn't add up. Eventually, um, you know, that that stymies your economic growth. You mean Donald Trump's Carl Icahn? (laughs) Wow. Oh, my heavens. How weird. No, but I guess that's the point you're making is how how backwards this is for business. And yeah. and so if business is more worried about the Carl icons and, and just, you know, the ma- making the stock price stay up and look good, mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, in, you know, overinflated um, versus jobs, no wonder yeah. our jobs market really is pretty dismal. I mean, every, I mean, I guess the numbers are supposedly okay, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are angry. 
Well, that's for sure. I mean, la- and last Friday's jobs numbers were actually a bit of a disappointment. Right. What's, it, what's interesting is that the whole nature of employment in the country has changed. I mean, you know this. We all feel this in our, in our home communities. Um, a lot of very high-quality jobs have gone elsewhere, uh, which is part of this process of financialization because uh, the markets want to send things wherever it's cheapest. Um, but that's not necessarily best for local economies. And I'm arguing that actually there are other models. You know, there are other countries that do this differently. In Germany, for example, you have a system where uh, business is still more in charge than the financial markets. And so you have businesses that will pay relatively high labor rates and keep jobs at home and really keep quality incredibly high, which then allows them to charge higher prices for goods. And that economy works, and it actually enriches local populations. And I'm arguing, particularly in my solutions chapter, that we need to get back to to that sort of a model. Oh, yeah. Man, you've got a lot of good arguments. We've got to take a break, Rana. We're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is um, she speaks regularly on CNN as a global economic analyst. She also is um, the uh, assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. We're honored to have her. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion about the rise of finance and the fall of American business. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you you hear all of the frustration, you know, people fighting at a presidential event. And uh, Bernie Sanders screaming over and over about Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. Well, uh, who better to, to teach us all what's going on on Wall Street and uh, business then uh, Rana Faruhar. Rana is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is the assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. She um, she's, she's the real deal, for heaven's sake. She also appears regularly on <laughs> CNN, and she at least for once has a clue. I don't have a clue, so I need you here to help us, Rana. <laughs> I don't know. I think you sound like you've got a clue. I mean, I, you know... What's interesting is I think a lot of people, you know, living in the real world on Main Street uh, throughout America do have a clue. I mean, they recognize that something is profoundly wrong with the way our economy is working. And we've been sold a line in the last 40 years that the markets know best and that the markets are up. You know, everything's fine. We should all be happy. And that's just not the case. And, um, you know, you mentioned folks fighting at a Trump rally, Bernie Sanders and I actually think that my my book goes a long way towards explaining both the Trump and the Sanders phenomenon, which to me are in some ways different sides of the same coin. It's about people being really disenchanted with establishment politics. Well, why are they disenchanted? Because they see uh, decisions having been taken across both 
Republican and Democratic administrations over the last several decades that haven't helped Main Street but have helped Wall Street. Exactly. And we need to bridge that gap. I mean, we, the next president, whoever it is, has got to address this issue. Is Because the role of government is enormous. Um, you know, government was asleep at the watch and mm-hmm. and, and, and that, you know, caused a, a a catastrophe economically, but it also seems like we're just setting ourselves up for it again. What what, what is well, the role of government in this? Well, this is an, so. This is a really interesting point. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have blamed bankers about the financial crisis and a lot of the bad behaviors that we've seen in the last few years, and certainly some of them deserve blame. But at the end of the day, Washington is the arbiter of what happens on Wall Street, right? I mean, politicians can regulate the markets. They can right. they can also, you know, not just use regulation, but they can craft um, checks and balances and incentives through the tax code that, that encourage institutions and people to do the right things rather than the wrong things. But one of the big problems, and I also look at this in my book, is that the financial power of Wall Street has become such that uh, if you look at this election cycle, um, the top out of the top ten individual political donors, six of them are hedge funders. Wow! So you've got one industry. I mean, every year, big big finance basically jockeys with big pharma for who's going to be the single biggest industry donor to Washington. So you have a tremendous amount of financial capture of of what I call cognitive capture, where Wall Street has the it has the, the ear of politicians. You know, I mean, if you just look at how the Dodd-Frank financial regulation was crafted in the wake of 2008 in the financial crisis, over 90 percent of all the meetings about that regulation were taken with Wall Street bankers themselves. Wow. So, you know, if you wonder why things turned out the way they did, it's because Wall Street was the biggest voice in the room. And we really need to address that problem. And one of the things I want to do with my book is is say we need a much bigger group of stakeholders uh, in the arena talking about this. And, and it's funny, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the moment that I knew I needed to write this book was during an off-the-record conversation that I had with um, a former Obama administration official who was talking, uh, had had a role in the, the bailouts and in um, the, the, the sort of rebound from the financial crisis. And we were talking about uh, how regulation should be crafted. And I pointed out that one of the most contentious parts of regulation, something called the Volcker Rule, which was designed to separate risky trading from plain vanilla lending. It was a very important piece of regulation. But 93% of the meetings about that had been taken with Wall Street bankers. Oh, wow. And the, and the official looked at me, and he looked at me with a, with a truly – confused look on his face and said, well, who else should we have been speaking to? And I just, wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. Unbelievable. I I need to, I need to write a book about this because if you don't know who you should be speaking to, exactly. We got a problem here. Oh, see that's, that's, that's again, the problem is too. Then we have, I guess, new business students graduating from business school, you know, going to New York, working with these firms and, this just keeps getting perpetuated and growing and growing. Why wouldn't you want to go make money? Well, that's it. And I actually have a chapter in my book on business education as well. And it's interesting because a lot of the CEOs that I speak to these days say, we can't find the right talent that we need from business schools. And I say, well, why is that? And they say, well, 
because business schools are basically teaching finance. They're not teaching business. They're teaching students how to move money around on a balance sheet. They're not teaching them how to really innovate and Mm. learn particular industries and, and think creatively. And, you know, it's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about how to run a business. It used to be that everybody was told, you know, marshal your capital, cut costs, guard your money at all costs. Right. The, the, the world the world is awash in money right now. You know, I mean, there there's actually the Federal Reserve Bank of America has put $4 trillion into the economy since 2008. There's money sloshing around everywhere. But what's harder to find is real skill, real human talent, um, people that can think creatively. And so... Businesses need a totally different kind of leadership of executives, and business schools are still teaching finance finance 101, and they're not churning out the talent that we need to really create the next generation of business growth in this country. Yeah, BYU has the Marriott School here, and mm. it's a great top-notch uh, program, especially MBA program. But the funny mm-hmm. thing is finance is the hardest one to get into because everyone well, everyone wants to be a part of it. Well, right. And, you know, you can't blame these kids because so many of them will come out. Uh, I don't know what the cost of BYU is, but many around the country, many will come out with, with such um, debt and so many student loans that they, mm. you know, they have to go where the money is. Yeah, got to pay it off. is in finance. And that's, and that's what's really interesting. I think that, you know, getting back to that finance creates 4% of jobs but takes 25% of profits. We need to put that profit share a little more evenly around the, the, the rest of the different areas of business in this country. And, and so you really see it's it's not just a government issue or just a big business or a Wall Street issue. Also, Main Street business, uh, we're, we're not necessarily just exercising good old-fashioned business skills. It's all money movement. Well, a lot of industries, and you know, I think that the bigger companies do more of this. I think small and mid-sized companies do still tend to be a little more grassroots, a little more focused on their knitting. Um, but if you look from the 80s until now, um, across all industries in America, businesses are getting about five times as much revenue as they did in 1980 from just moving money around. Wow. So this puts us, and the other thing I, I think is very important, this puts us at a real disadvantage on the international landscape because a lot of the new companies coming up from the emerging markets, from China, from India, they're run by, um, by families or they're run by the state, and they can take a much longer-term view. They can think out over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whereas American businesses are under so much pressure to just think for the quarter. Now, the one exception, and this is a very interesting exception, it's almost the exception that proves the rule, is family businesses in America. If you look at private businesses, and in particular family-owned businesses, they invest about twice as much on Main Street as public competitors do. And what that tells me is they're able to do that. They see opportunities in their communities, and they are able to make those investments because they don't have Wall Street pressure on them. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. Hmm. Like crowd, like what about crowdfunding? What about some of these companies that are coming up through – I mean you can crowdfund – I guess it's called crowdfunding – your funeral now or your wedding. And I mean it's, it's still <laughs> – everyone's still looking for money, but I guess money with different ties, money, money with yeah. different commitments. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, crowdsourcing falls under this area uh, of finance called fintech. It's the combination of finance and technology. And I think this is a really interesting area to watch. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation here. Um, You're seeing companies that are really coming in and and saying, yes, small and mid-sized businesses and individuals need capital. Let's find some innovative 
new ways to provide it. And, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some that will succeed. There's going to be some that will fail and be problematic. But I think it's great that there's a whole new area that is challenging the established um, business model in banking. Right. We definitely need something different. But I guess what will still happen is, you know, if you have business savvy and sense, you grow your business, you get it big enough, then you do an IPO and then Wall Street comes in. And then they just take over. That's right. And there's this wonderful Stanford study that I quote in my book that if you look at um, big tech companies before they go public and after they go public, innovation in those companies after they go public falls off by about 40 percent because they they can't make those investments in R&D anymore. They have to start paying back the shareholders, like I was saying before. Yes. The death of the company. Um, (laughs) That sounds really bad, Rana. Uh, I've got some. I have a solutions chapter, though. Okay, what? Give us some solutions. What and and what can we do? Yeah. Well, so uh, one solution. I'll I'll say first um, one practical solution. There's so much we could do with the tax code. I mean, we have a tax code in this country that subsidizes debt and encourages debt over equity and savings and investment. And that's at both the consumer level and at the corporate level. So it's the reason why people are able to buy more house than they really need and write it off their taxes. It's Mm. the reason that companies are able to take on lots of debt that then blows up and tanks the company and people lose their jobs. So we could do a lot to change the tax code and say, let's reward savers and investors instead of debtors. So that's point number one. Um, Point number two, though, is that All of us with our retirement portfolios um, could think more smartly. I have a whole chapter on how the asset management part of the financial industry takes so much in fees. Um, These actively managed mutual funds, they almost never beat the market. Everybody should just put their money in a no-fee index fund and forget about it until it's time to retire. Yeah, Um, yeah. Because you just don't need to be paying those fees. Um, uh, there's been some really great academic research that shows as much as 60% of your nest egg can be eaten up by those fees if you're not careful. So put in put in an index fund, forget about it. Walk away. Walk away. <laughs> Don't check your portfolio every every day. Yeah. <laughs> what what should we do, uh, Rana, as an average just voter and somebody yeah. that because it does feel like we're very we're we're uninformed or misinformed. Well, uh, yes, and I think that. It's almost like we need to have a narrative shift. We need to change the story around and say finance is not the kind of tippy top of the economic pyramid that we should all be aspiring to. Financial services need to be serving real business, and we need to start to understand that. And frankly, we need to vote in politicians that that say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the things I've been a little disappointed by in this election cycle is I have not heard any of the candidates say really clearly the financial markets need to support Main Street. And here's how we're going to make that happen. And I think we need to really keep pushing um, as Americans for, for that message. Well, I bet you'll find that message deeply embedded in Hillary's emails somewhere and somewhere <laughs> atop the wall of uh, Donald Trump. Well, or in I'll the 1% find, of Bernie Sanders. Up there and keep looking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rana, you're, you're awesome. Keep up the great work. And everybody, uh, go check out this book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance, The Fall of American Business by Rana Faruhar. Thanks again, Rana. Thank you so much. You bet. Interesting. We got to get on it, folks. We got to get our companies back. I'm a businessman. It's hard. It's hard. And... I get it. But if all you're doing is making money to pay your money lenders, that's not the business model you need. You got to figure out a way 
to really trickle it down. <laughs> trickle down. Ronald Reagan said it, right? Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back. Do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Welcome to my house. Hey, um, love that interview because I. this is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. And it seems like the middle America kind of blue-collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie, some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, This is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right, to what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy. And – Maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. <sighs> and we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our, our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't – it doesn't – seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like 5% maybe, 10% of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck – we need some tough love, and the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it, and I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff, and they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay, So there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay, He's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. He, so he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see 
that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. No, he'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now, now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, a little swear word there, uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his, in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales – and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending ten percent on sales. Wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. 
How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? You ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know. It helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and uh, But also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating cells. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son Tim, daughter-in-law Ramey, and their poodle Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page driving Miss Norma. <laughs> Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you, gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer... It sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. 
And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful <laughs> because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel. Trash, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! <laughs> a photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine, worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can, Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See? You can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I, I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben... Because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you, have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling <laughs> South on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we tech, we contacted the iPad, told them to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And today, I, as promised, I, I'm trying to help us find the good in the world. And one of the things I have found just in my own professional career that is, I think, under misunderstood and, and underestimated in their value would be the foster care programs around the country. And so I've asked uh, Mike Hamblin to join us. Mike is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation. Utah Foster Care is a private nonprofit with a contract with the state of Utah to do all of the recruitment training uh, and training for state-licensed foster care families prior to working at Utah Foster Care um, uh, Mike worked with the Utah Division of Child and Family Services and was a caseworker and then Child Protective Services investigator. He has a master's degree in social work with emphasis in child wife welfare. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I haven't seen you forever. Mm-hmm. Mike and I, I used to do work and teach my own marriage classes at the same facility where Mike is, and we'd see each other, hang out, go to events. But good to see you. You're yeah, still working. Yep, still still have a job. It's great. You still you still have a job. Okay, foster care. Now, give us the overview because some people don't know what foster care is, and um, and yet it's it's happening in probably most of our neighborhoods. We're seeing some somebody helping, serving, doing something. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon to have the situation out there that you're just not aware of that so generally what happens is that when there's when there's concerns of abuse or neglect that come up a call goes in to the state agency um to the, in utah it's the division of child and family services and it's known by different names around the nation and uh, and from there based on what the allegations are what the concerns are they'll send out someone to do an investigation and really the initial role is to identify is there really abuse going on in the home is there neglect is there a reason to be concerned for the child and then the the next step to that process is then determining, okay, if there has been abuse or neglect, what needs to happen to remedy that? And quite often, they can put services in place with the child staying in the home and just help the parents out to, to get right. the help that they need. But in certain circumstances, when it's, when it's deemed uh, too dangerous uh, a situation for the child to remain for their own safety in that home, then it becomes necessary for the child to be removed from the parents. Uh, the goal is to have that be temporary while the state works with the parents, tries to resolve those issues, and then have the child return back to the family that they were removed from. Mm. It, and it's – I mean imagine you're a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy and you're living in an unsafe place anyway. It's whatever, maybe drugs, maybe just whatever. It could be anything, sure. crime or anything. Um or just abuse or whatever, what have you, then all of a sudden you're removed from that situation and put into many times a different situation, completely opposite of what you're used to. Right. And that's one of the things that has to be balanced through this whole equation is the concept of, you know, it's 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 not good for a child to be in an abusive or neglectful situation, but um, does it outweigh the trauma of having a child removed from that situation right. and put somewhere completely different? Because the reality, like you said, you know, the children are in this abusive, they're in this neglectful situation, there may be drugs, there may be some physical violence, domestic violence, but the other piece of the reality is, is that's what they've always known. To them, that's normal. Right. And so, um, it, you know, most of us would look at that and say, holy cow, look what they're going through. And for them, it's, that's just Monday, you know, that's yeah. Tuesday. And so, yeah, yeah this is a normal day. So, so it's not quite, I mean, it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's quite a balancing act to determine which trauma is, is more effective. 415,129 children were in foster care in 2014. Yeah. And that's actually a lower number. The state, the, the, 
all of the states have have really focused efforts recently on trying to reduce the numbers of kids in foster care, whether that's working to get kids home more quickly or moving them through the system to adoption if they're not able to go home. So some of these kids get to a point where they they go with their foster care parents and I guess eventually uh, their 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 birth parents aren't able to get together, get their act together, get them back, bring them back so then they can be adopted by a foster care family. Right, right. And this is this is actually – it's kind of interesting. So I started in, in child welfare at, at the state a little over 20 years ago. And at that time, the average length of stay for a child in foster care here in Utah was about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, three and a half to four years. And, and uh, in 1997 uh, – the U.S. passed the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which they they noticed that this was you know this was a negative thing for kids to just hang out in foster care. And the reality was, when a child was in foster care, we knew that they were safe. They were mm. with a foster parent. We knew that the abuse or neglect wasn't happening. So the focus was really on keeping families together and getting kids back to their parents. But it was based on the parents' timeline. And so if the parents weren't making any progress, there was no – I mean, there was really no stick to get them to move along yeah. or no carrot. And yeah. So they would just kind of hang out knowing they could, they could get their kids back at any time. And so in 97, the federal government passed this uh, Adoption and Safe Families Act, which basically said that um, anytime a child's been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months – then it's time for the state to move forward. And so they made it a little bit more easy oh, wow. to terminate the parental rights. And they just kind of said, it's not good for kids to hang out in foster care. They need yeah. some permanency, yeah. whether it's going home or going on to be adopted. And so um, and, and so every state, in order to receive federal funding, had to adopt something that would be in meeting with that. Here in Utah, basically what they determined was that uh, parents have 12 months to get their kids back and to work through their issues. And if wow. they can't do it within that 12-month period, then it's time to start looking at, a, at another long-term permanent home for the children. Are the parents able to visit with the child during foster care? Uh, yeah, yes, certainly. Yeah. And, it, and it really depends on what the circumstances are and what the risks are to the child. But yeah. initially, those visits begin supervised and then they'll move to unsupervised before the kids go home. A lot of times they'll have some some overnight weekend visits mm. while they're transitioning kids to go back home. And, and really, I mean, in, in Utah, theoretically, um, for most kids, it's at, at least once a week, for at least an hour a week. And for the really young kids, they try to do it more often than that. If you imagine the bonding that takes yeah. place with an infant, you oh. know, once a week for an hour doesn't do a whole lot no. for them. And so they'll no. try to do it more frequently than that. It seems like it's also just having done some work with your foster care parents. It's, it's a difficult thing because you bond with these kids. A lot of times you, you fall in love with them and then you give them back. That's hard. Yeah. And um, – or sometimes you don't quite bond the way you thought you would, and it's it's harder because some of these kids are struggling because of their history. So, I mean, what's, what is it like? Explain just kind of who comes in and decides, hey, I'm going to be a foster parent, and and how do they make that decision? Yeah, it's a, it's really a challenge either way, like you describe, and, and it's interesting to see talking to foster parents. They'll say, you know what, we always cry when they go home. Sometimes we you know, cry sometimes with joy. cry with joy, sometimes. Yeah. and and uh, and they do um, get to love the children, even the ones that that can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so usually, what we see as far as foster parents, we see a lot of families that feel like um, they've had it, they've got they've got it good. You know, they've been really blessed in this life. They to have a good job, to not have a lot of serious issues in their family, and so they feel like they want to give back to the community and help out kids hmm. that don't that don't have it that good. 
Uh, we also see families that are looking at to potentially add to their to their family through adoption. You know, whether for whatever reason they're yeah. unable to have children themselves, or their children are grown and they feel. Like, in fact, I've talked to some families that say, you know, we're able to have children, but we feel like there's enough children in this world that need parents that we don't need to bring more children into the world. So we we can take care of the ones that are here. And mm. so we kind of see a combination of those. And in Utah alone, there were more than 600 children adopted from foster care last year. And so it's not amazing. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And there's more children that would, would have been available or are available to have been adopted that are waiting for families. Are they usually then adopted by the foster family, foster care family? Yeah, most, most children adopted from foster care are adopted from the family. And, and a part of that is... Um, you know, speaking of the trauma of having a child go into foster care, we also know that it's traumatic every time they have to move. So if you're yeah. with a family and then it's like, okay, in fact, it, years ago, we separated it out and we had foster families and adoptive families mm-hmm. and, you know, they never crossed paths. And so a child would go into foster care, stay in foster care. If they were going to be adopted, they would be, even if the family wanted to adopt them, they would be moved to an adoptive family. And now since we recognize the trauma involved in moving kids, yeah. Um, we really focus on families that are are willing and able to do both. To be, a, we call it a resource family. You know, be hmm. a resource for the child, whether that's temporary for however long that is, or whether that becomes permanent. And especially, uh, the focus has become, especially for younger children, you know, under the age of five or six, the focus really is on just finding foster families that are also open to adoption, so that hopefully they never have to move. Yeah. And with the older kids, it's a little bit more common to have families that that just foster and then other families that adopt. Wow, it really it's so needed. And I and I I just think I don't know, having trained a bunch of them too, it's there's so much love that they have and these parents I mean, they get compensated, right? A foster care parent is compensated by the state to cover the costs for. I mean, but it's not like yeah. In theory, you're not it making covers living costs. It's food, shelter, clothing, basically. right? Yeah, it's. We joke that it's. Uh, it starts at a little over fifteen dollars a day, and you know, we kind of joke if you wanted to kennel your dog, you'd be paying twenty. So. <laughs> It's you true. know, you get yeah, you get totally less true. than what. So you, it's an act of love, not right, right, sense. and so that fifteen dollars a day covers. You know, any clothing, there's a certain clothing allowance, a certain amount supposed to be spent on clothing each month. And so, you know, food activities. And we, as a private nonprofit, we're able to take in donations from uh, individuals who are willing to uh, help and support foster families. And so we have what we call a wishing well fund Mm -hmm. where families can come to us and request some assistance to purchase, you know, something like bikes for kids or um, if they need additional uh, additional items for whatever we've paid for music lessons. I mean, all of those kinds of things, all those enrichment type activities to try and normalize life for kids oh. that it, without support, um, the foster parents would need to come up with the funding for themselves. It's so it's so important. And I mean, fundraising. So if, if you want to, you can go to utahfostercare.org and, and just look at what they do and understand that this is just for Utah. Um, but there are other every every state would have some organization, right? Yeah, every state has organizations that are similar that are doing, you know, that same recruitment or providing yeah. some support one way or the other. Well, let's take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion about foster care and and the need, folks. Four hundred thousand kids need help every year in the foster care world. Mike Hamblin is joining us. He'll come back and we'll continue to discuss foster care families and uh, what you can do about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, I'm today talking with Mike Hamblin, who is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation, which is a private uh, nonprofit organization that's contracted with the state of Utah to take care of foster care recruitment and, and training and, and taking and just managing the program. Every state has their own foster care type of program, and um, I'm, the reason I wanted to talk about it is we, we hear story after story about all of these kids that uh, you know are getting in trouble. They don't have the support at home that they need. And um, there are answers out there, folks, but they also they need your help, too. So if you're a parent, um, if you if you've ever thought of adopting a child or just interested in understanding the foster care program as a foster care parent, you don't necessarily adopt the child. You first are just a foster parent. You provide a space for them to be safe and grow. And then then once you once they're growing and healthy and things are working, you could maybe in time move to to uh, adopt if the child doesn't look like he's going back to his parents. Right. It just depends on the, that particular child's situation and, and what's going on with that child. And it's kind of, it's interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions about kids in foster yeah, care, how they those. get there, you know, what their situations are. And, and the reality is, is that kids are in foster care, not because of anything that they've done, but because of abuse or neglect they've experienced. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, we talk about the role of the environment in our development. Unfortunately, based on that abuse or neglect, uh, it's not uncommon for them to develop some behaviors which really were appropriate and and were meant to protect themselves from right, that environment. Right. You know, if we've got kids that uh, you know that didn't have food in the home, and you find out that they're that they're stealing food from Seven Eleven on the corner, well, you know, okay, that's a negative behavior. But the reality is, is they survive. They needed something. They need to survive. Sure. And and those are the kids that then when they get into foster care, you know, they're in the home and and they're there's food there now. But but they're not sure they can rely on that. They haven't been in that environment. And so it's not uncommon to find kids who are maybe hoarding some food or they're not sure their their yeah. situation. I, yeah. I um, remember, I'll never forget a little boy that uh, that went into a home. And it's um, it's kind of an interesting story that he, uh, the, the family's home that he moved into, he's about four years old, the family's home that he moved into, they began renovating their kitchen not long after he got there. And so they had this pantry in the kitchen and they took the door off it while they're putting a new floor in. And uh, the foster mom told me he couldn't walk through the room without stopping in front of that pantry and looking at all the food. And once she, he was playing outside and he needed to go to the bathroom and he came running in and he still had to stop in front of the door and kind of dance a little jig before he took off down the hall to the restroom. Oh, but it was just – he just couldn't understand. Yeah. She said that you know when he first arrived, she was making him a sandwich or you know some – SpaghettiOs every two hours. He wanted something to eat, oh and as heavens. time progressed, and mm-hmm. and you know part of it was just making sure, yep, food's still available. As time progressed, it got to the point where he asked with the same frequency, but she'd make a sandwich and he'd take two bites, and then he'd be done with it. And at first, she was frustrated. And then she yeah. thought, well, I can put it in a you know in a ziploc; it'll be ready for next time. That's right. And and as time progressed, and as he began to trust that environment, then, th- then they went back to their established meal times, and he yeah you know, he felt safe, and he felt like he could trust that there was food that's going to be. Ah, and it's similar it's with other behaviors. You know, if a child's been physically abused, um, every time something goes wrong, then of course they're going to tell you that they're not the one that spilled the milk or broke whatever, because in, in their home growing up, when they're the one that did that, then they were physically mm-hmm. abused. And so why would I tell you the truth yeah. about something I might have done? I don't know how, I don't yeah. know you. I don't know what you're going to do to me. But it seems like it's a good thing to for everyone to learn that um, 
I mean, like the brothers and sisters, if you have children already and you're bringing a foster care child in, kids are developed. They can grow. They're resilient. They'll learn. They'll change. They'll adapt in many situations. You just need to kind of be patient and not not automatically turn on them because they lied or they stole something. Well, and it's amazing the progress they can make. When, so when I was a caseworker, one of the first cases I had was a um, was a. a boy who was about nine years old and uh, he came into foster care in the fall and so they did some testing with him initially at the school to determine where he needed to be what he needed Uh, while he was in foster care um, you know suddenly he had parents that uh, that cared about him doing his homework that you know that read to him that played games with it did all these things so the end of the school year they tested him again he had jumped 20 iq points within about a six or seven month period of time based solely on the interest and the effort that this family had put into helping him oh my heavens and then you've told stories off air about um just a, a girl who had straight a's and great test scores it's just her mom wasn't healthy. Yeah, yeah. Her mom had some issues um, th- that led to it not being safe for her to be at home. She had she. In fact, so, so with this particular girl, it's kind of interesting. She came into foster care because her mom got angry with her and wanted to talk to her. She ran into her room and shut the door. The mom and locked it for the mom to get in. She tried to knife her way through the door and then lit the door on fire, thinking she could burn her way through the door. So oh I mean, it was heavens. just not yeah. a stable place. So she this, wasn't well. Yeah. So this girl comes into foster care, and I went to visit the mom two days later, and the mom tells me I haven't eaten in two days. And I said, well, why haven't you? I said, well, it's, it was her job to do the grocery shopping. I haven't eaten in two days. Well, she lived across the street, block and a half away from a grocery store, uh. but she hadn't eaten in two days based on. And so, I mean, some of these parents need some very serious help. Yeah. Um, but the other reality is, is that again, some of these, these kids are great kids. And they just need to know they're loved, right? And secure. And then have somebody, I mean, then systems, structures, right. somebody that cares that can show them what a normal life looks like. Right. And it can take some time. I think, you know, going back to the example you gave not long ago, you know, consider yourself as a 10-year-old and that you're living in this environment, You've but but it's the environment you're used to. So, you, you know, you go to school, you know your teacher, you've got your friends, you know yeah. what to expect. And then somebody comes along one day and takes you away from that, moves you to a different community, mm-hmm. you know, puts you with a family that you don't know, with oh. a teacher that you don't know, in a place where you've got no friends. The smells are all different. The foods are all different. Now, now, tell me how well you expect that particular child to do in school immediately exactly. or how well for them to adjust. You know, that's the last thing on their mind. They're thinking, when am I going to see my parents again? Right. What, you know, what happened to my favorite toys? You know, where are my clothes? What? It's um, so much. Well, and here, here's kind of the breakdown. So there's about 415,000 kids in foster care programs. Um, 52% are male. 48% are female. 39% are five years old or under, uh, 23% are 6 to 10, 22% are 11 to 15, 16% are 16 to 20. seems like the 16 to 20-year-olds wouldn't be as easily uh, placed as uh, some of these younger. Yeah, that tends to be true. But because of those misconceptions, yeah. a lot of families come and they say, you know what, I, you know, if a five-year-old, if something goes crazy, I can hold on to them and, and – yeah. You know, restrain them. But, but if a 16-year-old yeah. comes along, then it's a little bit tougher to do but that. But again, they need love. And then you've given us great examples of um, of where that can happen. 20 uh, of where somebody can come in and adopt an older child and make a huge difference. 24% are black or African-American. 42% are white. 22% are Hispanic. Um, it's, it's interesting, too. Uh, 46% are, are of foster care families are non-relatives. So almost half of them are non-relatives, according 
to this uh, national statistics. National statistics. Yeah. About 29 to 30% are relatives. So a lot of times you might get a chance to adopt or foster some of your own brothers and sisters' kids, your nieces, your nephews. Yeah, and that's really the first place that the state looks. Again, going back to that, the trauma involved in putting a child into foster care, removing them from their family, if they can be with someone that they know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here in Utah at least, and I'm sure it's similar other places, that those in, initially, when a child first comes into foster care, they're looking at, is there a relative, a grandparent, and or uncle, someone the child could stay with? And if there's not a relative, is there someone else? Is yeah. there a neighbor? Is there you know the parent of a friend? Is there an old school teacher? Is there somebody that knows the child that the child knows yeah. that's going to make it a, a more easy transition for them? Is well, what should we be doing? What can we do? So one, I think, I guess, is we could donate to the areas in our or, and get involved too. I mean, you donate money, but donate resources, donate time. I'm sure there's other things needed, clothing. I mean, I've seen at your offices clothing drives, all sure. these great activities. What else can we do? to get more involved in this foster parenting world. Yeah, we we always kind of joke that it's about time. You know, if you've got if you've got a few, you know, months or weeks or months then then get licensed, you know, become a foster parent. Look at what kinds of children. And and one of the aspects of that is as a foster parent, you identify what you're comfortable with, the yeah. ages, the genders, the number of children. Uh, and and it's never a situation where the state just says, "Hey, we're going to place the child with you," but they call you and tell you about a child's background, what the issues are, and then you determine whether or not to have the child come and stay with you. Yeah. So if you've got the time, that's obviously the, the best place to start. So then if you don't have as much time, then you could look at, are there places, are there ways that you could work with and mentor a child? Here in the in the state of Utah, there's uh, the, so for every child in foster care, a guardian ad litem is assigned. And the guardian ad litem is an attorney that is intended to represent the, the best interest of the child or what the child needs. And, uh, and they have some folks that work with them that are called court-appointed special advocates or CASA workers. Mm-hmm. And those CASA workers are then assigned to go out and be mentors for kids in foster care. They'll go spend you know, a couple of days, you know, up to three or four days a month with the kids, just take them out, do some activities, see how they're doing, check in with a foster parent, yeah. and then report back to these attorneys so that they have more updated information. And there's similar, similar programs around the U.S. with different advocates or mentors that can meet with kids and, and help you know, just help kids at the same time, helping foster parents, providing them with a little wow. bit of a break now and then. I, yeah. So they can do any level of that. Yeah. So, so anywhere in between. Um, and then, you know, say if you don't have any time at all, then, you know, pull out your credit card or your checkbook mm-hmm. or whatever donate. And, and donate. Mm-hmm. Um, or find, I mean, find people that are wanting children and are looking at it. Talk to them about fostering. Yeah. A lot of people that come to us are referred to us by, by relatives or friends yeah. who know that based on their circumstances, they may be a good foster parent. They should look into it. See, you know what, Mike? Huge. And it's important. And it's such a great feeling watching these parents and their kids. Um, thanks for being with us, Mike. Sure. Appreciate it. Here. Everybody go check out uh, the foster care if you want to. UtahFosterCare.org is Utah's site. But go look up foster care in your uh, area and start getting involved. Let's make a difference, right? Let's not just keep being frustrated by what's going on around the world and the country. Let's start uh, stepping in, doing something about it. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hey, um, when you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, One of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're, that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school. That we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right, like. We talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting this social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more 
then you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time, um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called our podcasts. That's it. Go look up our podcasts and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. Anyway, basic stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break. Come back. Hour number three up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about? But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them, I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They They actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. <laughs> People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it, it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life 
are intangible. There's, they're not even – you can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and then i got to pray. Well, you could say no. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident. uh, And some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't, ever say yes to anything and you don't ever step out of your comfort zone. We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. It's, it's how many times do you keep trying to do something over and over and it's just not working? We keep trying it. That could, I mean, I see it a lot with my clients where They just keep trying and trying and trying to do – to have a conversation even though it's not working. Well, what are we supposed to do? Just not talk? Well, no, but go learn how to make it work. Find another way to do this. There are different ways to try stuff. And with today's technology and today's day and age, if if the way you keep trying to lose weight isn't working and it hasn't for 30 years – Maybe you've got to let go of that way of losing weight. Maybe it's not about watching your calories. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way to skin the cat. I don't know why we're skinning cats, but... Seems gotta, a little cruel to me. Yeah, to skin, you don't have to skin a skin cat, cat to lose weight. You don't. But find another way to do it. Just go find something you're passionate about. Well, I really love racquetball, but I, it doesn't help me with my calories. Well, okay, there's... But then go do more racquetball. You know, I don't know. Just we've got to find a different way of doing things that especially after years of something not working. Another thing we might want to do is get rid of our need to accumulate stuff. Oh, it's just stuff we keep. I kept and I have no idea why I did it. I kept every 
script basically for our radio show. Every article I read, we we accumulate about 20, 30 pages of information that we use for this show every day. And I would just staple them all together and put them in a file. I threw them out. Actually, I had I had Kaylee throw them out. She broke her. She about, darn near broke her back trying to lift this, lift these papers. It's crazy. We accumulate stuff like it matters, but then when you look at people like Gandhi, you know, Buddha, Christ, these people were known for what they didn't have. They didn't try to get their identity from their stuff. Maybe we could just throw more stuff out, you know, recycle more, get rid of stuff, declutter. So I challenge you as springs are coming, let's declutter. Get in there and seriously, get rid of a third of your stuff. Well, but I might need it. Have you needed it the last 10 years? Well, no, but I might retire in 10 more years and then I might need it. Believe me, by the time you retire in 10 years, you won't need it. You'll have an iPhone that does everything for you. Another thing we might let go of is just one bad habit. Think of one bad habit. You might have 50. Ben has 250. And growing. (laughs) And growing. Just get rid of one bad habit. Just one thing. What's one thing you can just figure out how to stop doing today? One thing. Let's just get it off our plate. Oh. One bad habit. Ben, what's your bad habit you're going to get rid of? Caring too much. No, brother. Caring too much? When did that start? That's my defect. That's my only defect. My only weakness. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Don't even worry about it. Never mind. Knew I shouldn't have asked him. Just one bad habit. What's your what's your worst habit? I care too much. So I'm going to let it go and turn into a horrible, evil person. That's one of the great lines. What's your worst um, – what would you say is your worst habit uh, as we're about to hire you for this job? My worst habit is I, I try too hard. I work endlessly. You're amazing. I know. You ought to hire me. Anyway – Let go of just one bad habit. So there you have it, folks. A few ideas for you. Things we can let go of. Project elimination. Let go of stories that don't serve us. Let go of the need to keep score. Let go of the overs and the unders, the extremes that we take. Let go of what is not working. Let go of the need to accumulate stuff. And let go of one bad habit. Even if that habit is you care too much. That's the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever had a strange or a wild idea that you had to force out of your mind? Just like get rid of that thought, right? For those who suffer from OCD, pushing out intrusive thoughts can be overwhelming. uh, But turning your worries into a catchy tune, 
might be a solution for those who suffer from intrusive thoughts. And here to discuss intrusive thoughts with us and the power of songifying is uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And uh, Dr. Hayes is a professor of behavioral analysis at University of Nevada, Reno. He's the author of 38 or more books and uh, is also the developer of the Relation Frame Theory. We'll talk to him about as much of this as we can. Dr. Stephen Hayes, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. What uh, You talk about um, songs and singing and music as a means to helping to, I guess, get rid of, to, to destroy or re-script uh, intrusive thoughts. What, what do you mean by intrusive thoughts? Well, it's the kind of things that we normally struggle with that we try to push out of mind. And I don't think you really can get rid of them or destroy them, but you can see them in flight. And the, the power that they have over you is they sort of pull you into that cognitive network that has set of associations and relationships that you've learned. And once you're in there, you are kind of uh, have less power over where your mind is going to go. If you can back up and watch that it's taking you there, then you have some choices about where you're going to put your attention and what you're going to do in your life. And so that's really the pivot point. If huh. you, uh, once, once, you're, once you've got your, uh, your, uh, you're locked into a battle with your thoughts, you're pretty much uh, already at their mercy. And we're trying to catch people the few milliseconds before that happens and get some choice into the situation. Is, you call it the cognitive network, I guess. So once you kind of get in the, the what is it? Are you like in the, you're already like on the slide? <laughs> Then the slide's going to naturally follow the network right to the pool of emotion that'll just take over? For people listening, if I said Mary had a little, there's just no way that Lamb's not going to show up. That's innocent in that case, but suppose it's uh, deep down I'm not a good person or uh, I'm not lovable or, uh, you know, I'm going to contaminate my children or... and when you run from these thoughts and try to do something to get rid of them, actually you're elaborating that network. We've shown in our research that the places that you go when you try to run eventually remind you of the, pl- the things that you're running from. Hmm. So if, for example, you tried to think of something to distract yourself from a, a random uh, thought that may have occurred to you that frightened you in some way, the way that you went to distract yourself now within just a matter of minutes will remind you of where you came from. So that's some of what you see in OCD. Hmm. Almost, almost everybody has odd thoughts. Like if you're driving on a bridge, what, what would it be like to uh, turn the wheel and fly off into the space? The difference is that people who develop uh, OCD, etc., are the ones who struggle with them most, not the ones who have the odd thoughts. We all have them. Hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I guess really what a lot of this is is this is just our patterning of thinking and our way of thinking and I guess trying to correct ourselves. I mean, it's an interesting point because when someone's, for example, trying to break a habit, um, if they if they think too much about trying to not have that feeling, you're saying they might end up actually ingraining it deeper. Well, we've all lived through that when with uh, a diet, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, don't think about that donut in the... <laughs> Uh, back of the refrigerator, and pretty soon you find yourself, uh, you know, digging to the back of the refrigerator. And, you know, habits are better built by this kind of patterns of action that become automatic. 
And that's some of what happens in our minds when, when we're constantly feeding them with this struggle message. So when, if you're going to break out of the struggle with your thoughts, you need to develop a habit of sort of openness, curiosity, and then having the flexible attention to be able to focus towards your values and behavior and linking your behavior to your values. So we try to catch that moment where our thoughts sort of overwhelm us or dominate us. We call it cognitive fusion where you disappear into that cognitive network. Almost like daydreaming, I mean, if you uh, are driving down the street, you may daydream and suddenly realize you've gone miles without being aware of what's going on. You're off in your mind. Well, in some ways, we can do that for months and years on end as we fall into the daydream of I'm a bad person or uh, you know, no one will ever want to be with me or there's something, deep down there's something wrong with me or... And these are the kind of things that visited us all, but what we do with them determines whether or not they're going to really create a problem for us. So when you work with clients, your I guess your goal is to help to get them in this state of cognitive, uh, in that state of, I guess, cognitive fusion, right, where they're, they're able to look at it. What we're trying to get them to is what we call cognitive defusion. Defusion. Essentially what, what we try to do is slow the mind down and to notice where it takes you with a sense of curiosity and openness and self-kindness or compassion. After all, your thoughts are sort of have a mind of their own. And sometimes people get uh, with difficult thoughts, almost this kind of scrupulous uh, perspective that if you think a thought, you've done something bad. And actually, that's, that's bad theology in every one of the major religions. If you will a thought, you can do something bad. But if you merely think a thought, that, that's something that just happens to us all. Right. So if you catch that moment before that sort of act of choice to, to follow the thought out happens. And so some of the things that we do, well, we might start out with just an open kind of awareness process, like imagining that as you look at the cars going by on the freeway, if you were sitting, uh, sitting uh, and watching them go by, that with each thought, put it on one of the cars and just let it go by. Hmm. And just practice allowing thoughts to come and go without grabbing them, holding them, pushing them, trying to race them, change them, but just noticing them in kind of an open sense. When and and people have, have that, they, we have the ability to do that. Say it again? We have the ability to do that. We have the ability to do that. And in fact, all of our contemplative traditions or contemplative prayer traditions, things of that kind, teach us, I think, to keep our focus. And then when other things come up, to, to allow them to simply go by and bring our focus back to what we're doing. And that, that mixture of being open to the distractions that go by, because if you grab it and focus on it, well, now you've lost your focus. Mm. And then coming back to what you choose to focus on, that sort of one-two punch of openness and then redirecting attention, or in all of our contemplative traditions, meditation traditions, and so forth. And so that's one place we start. But when we've done that, then we may actually play around with some of the things that we've developed in the laboratory, hundreds of methods, but I'll give you a few examples. One that was developed at the turn of the century by a guy named Titchener, father of American psychology, really, and we were the first to ever use it clinically, which is just if you have a difficult thought that's really sticky, distill it down to a single word and say it out loud fast for about 30 seconds. So if you have a thought that you're a loser, let's say, distill it down to loser, say loser out loud fast for about 30 seconds. And by the end of that 30 seconds, 
it is a sense of disconnection from the thought. The thought begins to lose its meaning, and the the uh, upset that it produces goes down. The sense of believability in it goes down. Hmm. And the next time that thought occurs, I'm a loser. You'll have just a little bit of a fragment of loser, 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 loser to the of meaninglessness, and it'll give you a choice as to whether or not you then run out after it or fight with it. No, I'm not a loser. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of this well-worn battle that you know is going to end up with you disappearing into it and, and in a sense losing in the effort to win. Hmm. Instead, better not to fight at all. Just allow that thought to come and go and redirect your attention towards what you care about. Does it get, and it gets better every time you do that? It just it has less hold on you? Well, we've, we've actually shown that, yeah, in controlled research that this kind of word repetition allows people then to, over time, not just in the moment when you're doing it, have more sense of openness and choice about these difficult thoughts that emerge. And the one that you mentioned in the intro, the Song of Five, especially with adolescents and so forth, we, we like doing things. After we get into the spirit of it, you usually start with things like this, this thought observation, uh, this kind of open, almost meditative thing, and then things like word repetition. But eventually, the more humorous ones will come up, or we'll actually do things like create depression rap songs, <laughs> or uh, you know, put uh, uh, um, thoughts to the voice of your least favorite politician, or <laughs> perhaps Donald Duck. Perhaps Donald Duck could be the one to tell you you're a loser. Interesting, yeah, because it changes the whole thing if it's Donald Duck, you know, a lispy duck talking to you. Well, exactly, since. If you have this kind of associative process, or if I say Mary had a little, you're going to have that thought. When mm-hmm. you have well-worn thoughts, they occur repeatedly, and they're so grooved in our brain, and there's no delete button in the brain. There's no subtraction. It's all addition and multiplication. And so instead of trying to find the magic eraser in the delete button, if you change the context by, for example, saying them in a funny voice, it changes their impact. And then the next time they occur, not in a funny voice, you have a little bit of remember, remembrance of that funny voice version of it, and it gives you a bit of a choice. Wow. The thought, impact of thoughts on you is not automatic. You can change that, but you need to change them in ways that are more clever than we're normally used to, which is simply to try to argue ourselves out of it or distract our, ourselves away from it, which sometimes only amplifies the network and amplifies their impact. Yeah, it is powerful to think how how much they just if you don't think about it like you're saying if you don't get into that kind of uh early on openness and, and where you're actually able to look at your thinking then you're just i guess riding down the river you're just going with the flow and that flow seems to lead you to the same you know pain no exactly and it's it's well worn well grooved you know where you're yeah, going safe and, and that uh, attitude of initial kind of openness and so forth allows you to bring in the, this uh, uh, more flexible way of interacting with your thoughts that we call uh, diffusion. Once you're there, you don't want to do that as an end in itself. I mean, we don't want to simply back up from our thoughts. Some of our thoughts are useful. Mm-hmm. But w- once you're there, you can make some choices about the ones that are worth attending to, and we get into more directing your attention on purpose and then the work that I do in psychotherapy, acceptance and commitment therapy is the name of the work that we do or act. If you Google it, you can find many, many books on acceptance and commitment therapy if people are interested in trying to apply these methods. The one I wrote that's most popular, Get Out of Mind, Into Your Life, but there's several uh, others out there by other authors. Hmm. 
And Man. what we then do is we direct the attention towards meaning and purpose, because it turns out that if you're more open and flexible with your thoughts, you can bring choice in there and begin to focus on the qualities of being and doing that you really want to manifest in your life. And uh, that's worth linking your behavior to, not these kind of automatic uh, uh, Mary Had a Little kind of... Yeah, reactivity. It, yeah, to be an active being instead of just a you know, reactive being. Let's, um, let's take a break and continue the discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Hayes. He is a, a, the Foundation Professor of Behavioral Analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of many books um, that are uh, so valuable in this area of acceptance and commitment therapy. He's helping us reevaluate our thinking and our brains. Stick with us, folks. Go to, uh, by the way, his website, StephenCHayes.com. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I was just thinking about how many times you've had a thought that you can't get rid of and one that you really want to like, oh, quit thinking. You're so, you're going to blow it. You're going to blow this. Oh, you've got a big talk to give and you're going to just, oh. how do you break through and, uh, and, and move on really to a healthier space where you can actually start to think about succeeding at, uh, at, at public speaking or succeeding at something instead of just always being afraid of blowing it. Well, Dr. Stephen Hayes is joining us. He is the foundational or the foundation professor of behavioral analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has authored more than 38 books and is the developer of the relation frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy, and, um, which is uh, a tool that he uses to help as we go through um, this process of kind of re-scripting our brain, and he's uh, he's a great resource. We appreciate you here, Dr. Stephen Hayes. Thanks for being with us. It's fun to be with you. Talk about um, th- there really is. It seems like what you've been describing is there's a there's almost a pre-subconscious thought or or something that gets us starting to f- to create a thought, and you want us to see if we could get into that pre-thought moment. Yeah, to open up to, essentially what you're catching is you're catching the echoes of your history. I mean, you can sometimes find these critical thoughts are linked to particular memories or feelings or things that you've had. Uh, you mentioned people uh, giving talks. Part of my interest in this, where Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act came from, was my own panic disorder. And giving uh, talks and stuff 35 years ago was just a horror, mm. which was important for me as a, as a professor. And so I'd rehearse it, and I'd be thinking about it and worrying about it and so forth. If I dug down to it, you know, part of it was wanting to be there and make a contribution. There's actually a positive side to it. Yeah. There's also some echoes of my history that were very painful that were in those moments. I actually gave a TED Talk on that. If people want to uh, Google my hmm. name on YouTube or something, they can find it. And so when we back up and notice our thoughts... In addition to giving us more flexibility is where we go, sometimes we can have in that moment of more compassion or self-kindness a little bit of a sense of the painful histories that are linked to some of these difficult thoughts, things that have happened to us that we are actually learned from. Because yeah. The flip 
side of these painful memories and these painful experiences are the kinds of lives we want to live. And a person who's afraid of giving a talk is a person who wants to do something in the talk. A person who's afraid of people is a person who wants to be with people. Well, and wouldn't it make sense to be afraid of giving a talk if you have a horrendous memory of giving one in third grade when you weren't emotionally understanding how to do it? Exactly. You remember those moments of ridicule or criticism or so forth, but what's on the flip side of that pain is wanting to contribute, to be part of it, yeah. to be part of a group, to be liked, to make a difference. And those are not something that we want to close ourselves off from. So part of what is unhealthy about the normal way that we get into a struggle with our thoughts is that we miss the deeper emotional messages that are inside this painful history, which if you flip over, is very close to the values and mm. purposes that we want to bring into our lives. Sure. So, uh, we it, we do it at at the cost of knowing our own history and connecting with our sense of meaning and purpose. And, and by flipping to the positive side, I guess it becomes a motivator for you. It, it could be something that could keep driving you to go back and uh, and tame your thinking. Exactly, and the kind of a a kinder way, one that's not subtractive or limitive or self-critical. Very much as you might if you met yourself as a young child with some of these uh, difficult thoughts and difficult experiences, you know, very likely what you'd be moved to do is something quite kind for mm. the younger part. But yet when we grow up and those things echo in the moment, sometimes we cheer so, so critically and with wagging fingers about how we have to get rid of that, there's something wrong with you, stop that, mm-hmm. which, all of which just amplifies it out and puts an emotional tone into those moments that actually disempower us instead of empowering us to be present with ourselves as whole people and to be able to focus on what we really care about. I've seen that with couples, too, where when somebody has kind of an attachment uh, disorder where they're pulling away because, in a way, you can almost see the five-year-old boy just wanting to be loved, but instead he felt like he was rejected and now he's angry and not wanting to be involved in the relationship. There's an amazing compassion if we can see that in the other as well. Are there ways that we can help somebody's thinking that I'm with? Can I help bring them into this safer space? I think we can by bringing the same attitude of open, non-judgmental uh, curiosity and and this uh, sense of uh, awareness and, and uh, flexibility so that the real core of, of all of this message is being more psychologically flexible, of being able to turn towards some of the things that we've been turning away from but do it in a way that gives us the flexibility to take multiple pathways from it. So if, if you actually listen more deeply, for example, asking uh, someone who's really struggling about this, about a particular thought or something, about their own emotional experience, about you know what, a, what does that remind them of, how long has that been going on, are there other places this shows up, uh, what could we do when in a couple that we're in that space that would be healthy and moving us towards what we really value as a couple. Mm. So we can play this out at the group level. You can do the same thing. In fact, we've taken acceptance and commitment therapy and put it into organizations and businesses and schools, and we find that the very same principles apply at the level of the group and the organization. If you're managing somebody in your work environment and you give them no place to put difficult emotions or thoughts uh, you've actually 
created disempowered workers are going to be less effective for you. Which, which is, I guess, I mean, that's the, the, I guess, the concept of acceptance theory is if I don't feel accepted, I'm, I'm going to shut down, reject, pull away, disconnect. Exactly, and so psychologically flexible workers who are more open and more able to redirect attention towards meaning and purpose, towards values, the values of the business organization, etc., are empowered workers. And if, so this acceptance doesn't mean uh, tolerance or resignation. It doesn't mean accepting behavior that's unacceptable. Yeah, it doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean agreement. It means starting where you are with your history, which includes painful moments and difficult thoughts, and to do that with a sense of openness curiosity, and being able then to start from a, a solid foundation of it's okay to be me, and it's okay to start from where I am. Mm. And then let's find what we can do in the world of behavior to really build the kind of lives that we want to live as individuals, as couples, and as in our work environments, and our churches, our schools, etc. Yeah. Because we do, we we seem to be, and maybe this is part of our human nature, but it's also, I guess, part of our stinking thinking that we've got. Um, sometimes is that I don't, I almost don't want to hear what you're saying because what you did was so wrong. But I can go back and understand and understand and show acceptance and love for their. I mean, I'll probably agree with a lot of their emotional turmoil, or even just not even agree, but I can I can understand it and I can empathize with it. And that doesn't mean the outcome of what they did is right either. Right. Well, but, it, but it opens it, them up. It isn't, just, it isn't just the disagreement. Sometimes we see in others the weaknesses that we have. And uh. we've noticed that people who sometimes are very critical about certain features of others, these are things that are in the shadows, in, the, in their own uh, psychological closets. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's this... Uh, dumbing down of awareness even of our own uh, histories and, and weaknesses and difficulties and struggles when, when we fail to listen with compassion to the struggles of uh, others. But that doesn't mean that we lose judgment, as you say, about the end product. And so if we're going to empower each other to focus on what's important and get our behavior linked to that, it's better to do that by starting where we are and we're whole human beings uh, with a history but we can carry that forward one step at a time into a direction that will lead us. None of us are finished products, and none of us are about to win a prize for mm-hmm. uh, how great and grand we are. We're, we're a work in progress, and it's, it's more the ability to continuously reorient. And so that these, these techniques of diffusion and acceptance are not ends in themselves. They're so that we can reorient towards uh, values and purpose. Mm. It really, it's profound. And I I see it with so many in my own life. I see it with myself. And I've always tried to wonder how I, how I, how I slow it down. But what I hear you saying is the number one key is just start noticing the pre feeling, I guess, the pre thought that precedes the, the thought and just start being in that space and being open to looking at it. If I could send your uh, uh, way with a, uh, an image for how to do that. Yeah, yeah. Some of these things have such a long history, and you you mentioned, uh, you know, sometimes if you can see, you know, that's uh, the person in front of you who's making mistakes or has a five-year-old boy, do that with yourself. I mean, you take some of these difficult thoughts and feelings that go back 
have a history. The ones that are really hard for us tend to be old. And put take a little moment to imagine yourself as young as you can go. That issue is still there or beginning. And take the critical thought. You know, you're no good. You always screw up. Nobody will ever love you, whatever. And take it all the way down to yourself as a child. Picture yourself in front of yourself. And have that kid you imagine say that same words in the child's voice. Mm. And my guess is you're not going to want to slap them. You're not going to want to shake them. You're not going to want to wag a finger at them. You're probably more like wanting to hug the, the, uh, a kid who's you know, dealing with something that's difficult. Well, then bring that same posture to yourself. You're a whole human being. You, know, you belong here. You're, you're a valid human being. And, and then don't stop there. From there, now let's move and reorient towards that point in the distance that we want to head towards and walk together. Mm. But bring the kid with you. Don't... Uh, don't leave him behind. Yeah. Even if he if, if he has some wounds and difficult thoughts. Because the kid will just keep making issues for you anyway. <laughs> you got to. Yeah, they're going to come along like the kids <laughs> in the back seat of the car on a family vacation, and they're going to keep going, good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, exactly. If we can bring a posture of, uh, of of kindness to it, and catch these early thoughts before we get into the automatic pilot mode. Um, then you got some hope. Stephen C. Hayes, thank you so much for your uh, your insight. Great insight. And again, everybody, go look at the website, stephenchayes.com. Continue looking into his books as well. Uh, it's it's we got to get on these thoughts and uh, not do it in a, you know, in a fearful way. Just understanding openness. Look for the little child. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Because it doesn't come with a handbook, you need some tools, right? Well, we just heard some some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you, if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens. Because I think that very energy, that emotion is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned 
or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high, if you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at, they might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. <sighs> Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved, then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the th- thoughts you have, and then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier. Maybe do something to you know get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 